Late uh, this last spring, uh, Regina and I had the privilege of going to Aspen High School where there was a, an art show. It was an art show of the IB art students, the seniors who had created art pieces, and they, they were having this display of all their art, and it was really amazing. I was, I was amazed by the creativity of the students and, and their creations, some beautiful, some a little bit off the wall, some strange, especially our son Peter's work, but it, w but it, was, uh, but it was really an amazing thing, and I really enjoyed walking around the art show and talking to the kids and saying, tell me what gave you the idea to create this, and what's this all about, and they shared their thoughts and their ideas, and and then as I, I continued to walk around, I interacted with the seniors, and I said, well, tell me, tell me about your plans after graduation. And, and each one of them gave me very thoughtful responses about what they were doing, if they were going to college or doing something else, and if they were going to college, what colleges they were going to. And, and, and I, I was just so impressed by these kiddos and by the thoughtfulness of their planning for the future and of the choices they had made for themselves. It was really, really impressive. And as I left that place, I began to think about all these kids making really big life choices. When I finish high school, this is what I'm going to do next. And, and it was amazing. And I, I began to think about all the choices in my life that I'd made over the years and the decades. Some big choices like where to go or where to move, others small choices, other choices that absolutely make no difference at all, like which club to use on a fairway, because no matter what club I use, the ball ends up still in the next fairway over, so it just doesn't matter. <laughs> and um, then I thought about the choices our kids have been making. Peter, who's going off to the University of Miami next year in Florida, that was a big choice for him. Catherine, who graduated from college and deciding which school to teach in Denver, and she made a decision at which school to teach first grade in Denver, and it's great, and Elizabeth trying to make a choice as to what to do next, and I just began thinking about all the choices that I've made over my life, that Regina and I have made over our lives, and, and then I began thinking about all of you, and the reality is that I'm not the only one that has to make choices. We all make choices. We all make decisions every single day, all of us, and some of you may be faced with decisions now that are not so big. Others may be larger where to get medical care, where, where to move, where to retire, uh, what to do with grandchildren that are facing big decisions, money decisions, all kinds of things. We're, we're faced with choices. And so I thought it would be appropriate, given our reading today, when we hear the story about people making some good choices and the consequences of somebody making a terrible choice, that it would be appropriate to talk about decision-making and choice-making this day seems to me that making decisions with integrity and intent and foresight that are in alignment with our core values is imperative. And I know that we all want to make right decisions. And there are nearly as many ways to go about making decisions as there are people on the planet. And having said all this, I know that we are wise always to include God in a very big way when we're making big decisions. I know that during the course of my life, when I've left out God out of making a decision about something, that it's been an unmitigated disaster, whatever it might be. And so for a few moments this morning, I'd like to touch first on how people of faith have gone about making choices with God's help over the last several thousand years. And, and for this, just kind of a survey of how is it that people made decisions and choices in Scripture? I'd like to take a look at 
at, at some of this. It's a huge topic. I can't get into all the ways in Scripture in which people made choices, but I'd like to cover a few. Some are a bit strange. Some are a bit confusing. Some might be surprising. But with that said, let's take a look at what Scripture says about how people have gone about making decisions. Well, one practice that was used up to about a thousand years before the birth of Christ had to do with what were called Urim and Thummim. This is kind of strange. This is kind of like a godly Ouija board. This stuff is bizarre. But scholars are not completely certain what Urim and Thummim were. But thousands of years ago, the high priest in, among people or in, in the temple uh, wore very special clothes, clothes that only the high priest could wear. And one thing they wore was something called an ephod, which was basically like a big apron. And over the apron and over the priest's chest was something called a breastplate. And on the breastplate, there were 12 stones. And we don't know exactly what they look like, but some scholars think that on the 12 stones, they each had a letter on it, or some scholars think that the stones had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the priest walked around with his breastplate with these 12 stones, maybe the names of the tribes, maybe letters, whatever. But when the high priest asked God a question, Scripture alludes to this and scholars think this, that God's answer would, become, uh, would come in the form of certain letters or stones becoming illuminated in order to create a certain order of words. And some scholars think that no, it wasn't a word that lit up, but it was the name of a tribe that kind of illuminated and that God was working through this, this Urim and Thummim. Other scholars believe Urim and Thummim were 12 stones, but that some of the stones had the word yes on them, some of them had the word no, and others had the words you're out of luck, no answer. And again, the high priest would ask God a question and a yes or no or a no answer was illuminated. Interesting way about going to make a choice. I haven't seen Urim and Thummim in thousands of years, but it must have been entertaining. But in addition to Urim and Thummim, some stories in Scripture highlight that people would look for signs from God as to what to do. I don't know if you've ever looked for a sign from God what to do. I can remember being a, a kid and, and, and saying, now God, what, 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 what should I be reading today in Scripture? And letting the Bible you know, kind of flop open. Oh, I'm supposed to read this and get something out of that. I don't know if any of you ever did that as a, as a youngster, but I did. But people in Scripture look for signs from God. There was a fellow named Gideon who thought he knew what God wanted him to do. And he was pretty sure of it at first, but then he said, ah, God, I need a sign that this is really what you want me to do. So what I'm going to do, God, is I'm going to put a piece of fleece on the ground. And what I want you to do, if the answer is really what you want me to do, by tomorrow morning, I'd like you to make the fleece wet, but the ground all around it dry, and then I'll know you're serious. And that happened. And then the next time, Gideon said, well, God, I'm not so sure I believe this, so what I'd like you to do is make the uh, fleece dry and the ground wet. Or was it the other way around? I can't remember, but... He went both directions to get confirmation from God, a sign from God that this is indeed what God wanted him to do. Then there was Moses who looked for signs. So in response, God turned a stick into a snake. He made his hand turn white as snow, turned water into blood. These were all signs that Moses needed for reassurance that he was doing the right thing. 
And then there's the story of Abraham who sent his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. The servant went and asked God for a sign as to who should be the bride for Isaac. And the sign that he asked for was, bring a woman out who will offer to water my camels. She will be the one that should marry my son. Probably something that we don't want to do today for discernment for weddings. Yes, as long as there's been history, human beings have sought out tangible signs of what God thinks in order to make more effective and faithful choices. I don't know if any of you have ever looked for a sign from God. I know I have. Some of you know this story. Years ago, when Regina and I were deciding whether or not to accept the call to come here to Snowmass Chapel, we, we'd, we'd come here and we were blown away. Most amazing chapel, most amazing people, most extraordinary place. I'd never heard of it before, but we thought it was really amazing. And we both wanted to do what was right, because I was in the midst of discerning whether I should go to a church in Dallas, San Diego, or Phoenix, or Snowmass. Probably seems like an easy decision to most of you, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I was looking for a sign from God, to be honest with you. And so one day I was really struggling with this decision because I wanted to do the right thing, so I went to visit a therapist who works with clergy who are trying to discern things, and I was trying to figure out what the right step was, where we should go. And she said, you know, Robert, I think you're an idiot. She said, you've been wanting a sign from God as to where you should go. You have that sign. What on earth do you mean, I asked her. She said, you want a sign as to whether or not you should accept the call to go to Snowmass Chapel. All you need to do is look at Regina's face. When you mention Snowmass, her face glows, just like Moses' glows. What more of a sign do you need than that? You know, I, it's just human nature to want signs, and I think sometimes God plays along with us and other times not, and I think it's our human nature to look for signs, but just know that if you're ever one that looks for signs, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history and scripture to back you up in that. But aside from looking for signs, aside from Uman, Urim and Thuman, people in scripture often turn to judges who were considered wide wise people or prophets. A lot of people thought that judges and prophets were the only people who could understand the will of God. Thank goodness we've gotten over that, but that's one way that people went about making decisions. Then there was a practice called casting lots, which is basically like flipping a coin to try and figure out what God wants. In fact, this practice was used up to just a few days before Pentecost in which the Holy Spirit filled people. Now, there are bunches of examples of casting lots in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. No one knows for sure what lots were, but we know through many stories that people cast lots to try and figure out what to do. Some think lots were pebbles that would be tossed, and if the pebbles ended up in a certain order, that would be what God wanted the person to do. Others believe they were sticks of varying lengths, and the different sticks and the lengths would dictate what a person should do. Others assume that they were just flat stones and how they landed would be God's guidance. But whatever they were, and they may have been different types, it was like flipping a coin. And if the lots landed one way, it meant one thing. If they landed another way, it meant something else. You may remember the story of Jonah. 
being on the ship. And in those days, it was assumed that if something bad was going on, that somebody caused the problem. And so Jonah and his mates were on the ship, and a big storm came up, and they were trying to figure out, okay, who among us did something bad to cause this storm? And so they cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. And so they tossed Jonah overboard. They cast lots. Then the book of Nehemiah, the people cast lots to determine which family should bring wood at certain times to burn on the altar. Then the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and what do the soldiers do? They cast lots to figure out who's deserving of Jesus' clothes. And then the last story of casting lots is found in our reading today from the beginning of the book of Acts. We know that Judas is dead, the betrayer of Jesus. The disciples are trying to figure out whom to replace him with. There are two choices. They want to make sure that it's somebody that was a witness to the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There are two possibilities. And so what do they do? They cast lots, and the lots point to Matthias, and he is, he is chosen. So, that said, other than relying on Urim and Thummim, and signs, and casting lots, and judges, and prophets, what are some other things to keep in mind as we go about in our daily lives making big decisions and small ones. So I want to mention just a few points of guidance that I found helpful over the course of my life when pondering what to do. Now, all of these are grounded in Scripture. The list is not exhaustive. Some of these things are really obvious that you probably already do, and some may be more subtle. But let's just touch a few. These are guideposts for how to make wise decisions. The first one is the most obvious but something that sometimes we neglect doing when we're trying to make a choice about something, and that is to pray like mad. To pray, 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 pray like we've never played, prayed before. God, I don't know what to do. God, I'm facing a fork in the road. God, I'm facing a decision. God, I want to make the right choice. God, I want to make a choice that's faithful to you. I want to make a choice that is right for me and those around me. I need you to guide my thinking. I need you to guide me to make the right decision and to stick at it and stick with it. Really, prayer that is fervent and persistent and big. But aside from that obvious step is another obvious step, and that is when making choices, we have to include other people in our discernment. To not make big decisions alone, but to include those around us that are people of faith, that are people of prayer, and when Regina and I years ago were deciding to come here, I engaged many of my clergy friends. I said, I need you to pray for us as to where we should go. Will you join me in that? Will you give me your opinion? And will you, will you share what you think? And over days and weeks and months, they did just that, and it was invaluable help. The next thing may be a little less obvious, but that is when making choices is to make a choice that ultimately leaves you with a sense of inner peace. Sometimes making the right decision is a hard decision. Sometimes making a right decision is a difficult decision that involves consequences that aren't necessarily easy. But I have found, and I believe, and I believe Scripture teaches us, that when we make a decision that is consistent with what God would wish for us, what is best for us, that ultimately, even if it feels hard, we feel a sense of peace about it. 
a sense of calmness about it, even if it's difficult. God-driven decisions, in my experience, carry that sense of peace, even when the consequences are difficult. But aside from praying and asking others and going after that sense of peace, whenever we make choices, it's important that those choices are consistent with the general themes of Scripture. Right choices don't conflict with the general themes of Scripture. And I say general themes because there are tiny verses all over Scripture that can back up any decision you might possibly make that have nothing to do with anything. And so it's important that if we want scriptural guidance for what to do, we need to look for the themes. Is this decision about love? Is it about grace? Is it about forgiveness? Is it about integrity? Is it about honesty? Is it about kindness? Is it about selflessness? Is it about service? Those are big general themes. And right decisions will be consistent with those themes. Realize that right decisions rarely are in opposition to those general themes. Realize also, aside from what I've talked about, that when we're trying to make a decision about something, that we may want the answer to be yes about something, but the answer is actually no. And over the course of my life, I've discovered sometimes that a no answer tends to be the best one over the course of time. Had the answer been yes every time I've wanted something in my life, I would have had the most disastrous marriages, the most terrible vocations, lived in the most awful places, had the worst pets, the most awful neighbors, and everything would have gone berserk if everything I wanted to be yes at that moment turned out to be that way. Sometimes when we hear a loud no from God and we sense it, it may not be what we want to hear, but it could be precisely what we need to hear at that moment. No, don't do that. The best answer can be no. But aside from prayer and asking others, seeking peace, trying to make our decisions consistent with the general themes of Scripture and accepting no as an answer, it's so important to pay attention to doors that open easily and doors that repeatedly just seem to shut and close. I do believe that God opens doors. I believe that God closes doors for us all the time and that this is consistent with Scripture. The challenge is that sometimes we would prefer the doors that keep slamming in our face repeatedly than to walk through the ones that just easily open right before us. At times in my own life, I've wanted to go through a door that continued to close and close and close and close, and it was a mess. Pay attention to where things seem to just flow or where events line up or where things just seem to be in alignment, even if it's a surprise. Pay attention equally to where there's friction, continued friction and resistance, confusion and roadblocks and heartache. And it could be that God is pointing us in another direction when those things are happening. Just a few more thoughts here. Recognize that if you make a decision and you utterly fail, it doesn't mean it was the wrong decision to make. The most successful people I know who made right decisions, and I define success very broadly, are those who have failed by choices and decisions they've made. 
Sometimes we make the right choice and things don't work out the way we had hoped for. That does not mean the choice was the bad one at the time. And finally, realize that choices are not always immediately clear, nor is discerning the right thing to do always easy. Said another way, sometimes we need to be patient with coming up with a decision and persist until we're at least clear on what to do. Patience and persistence are great companions in good decision making. Before I made a wholesale change in my life, decades ago when deciding whether or not to go into ministry, I wanted to know immediately what to do. And I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and the answers did not come. And it took a full two years and a lot of work to finally get an answer. And it would have been a vast mistake and terrible mess had I either rushed it or not kept at it. Decisions, choices. Whenever you are in such a place, which is basically every day, remember to pray, pray, pray. Ask others for help in praying for you and helping you. Explore whether what, what you want to do ultimately brings you a sense of peace, even if that sense of peace is surrounded by tough things. Remember that good decisions are consistent with the general themes of Scripture. That the answer no can be a grace-filled answer. Follow the open doors and, and be aware of those that close. Recall that failure does not mean you made a bad choice. And finally, be patient and persistent. I want to wrap and close with this brief thought. A number of years ago, Paul McCartney was in a really bad place. And when Paul was in that space of pain, he had a dream. And some of you, many of you know this story. And in his dream, his mother Mary came to him. And her message to her son was, be gentle. Stop fighting things so hard. Go with the flow. Things are uncertain, but things will work out. And then she said to Paul in the dream, just let it be. Just let it be in the midst of this struggle. And while I don't think the Beatles nor Paul at the time were particularly religious in any way, I do believe that this experience was actually one infused with the Holy Spirit for Paul. It was a moment of profound grace and a, and a reminder to him, in fact, a reminder to us all. When faced with forks in the road, tough choices, big decisions, remember we are each always in the hands of God. We always will be. And when it's all said and done, it's going to be more than okay. It really will be more than okay when it's all said and done. And given this is the, ca the case, that sometimes when we're in that stressful decision-making place and having to make hard choices, remember just to relax, to let go and let God. And just let it be for the time being. It's going to be all right. And so let us pray.